Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. It's almost the end of term. I'm certainly looking forward to that. It's almost Christmas. I can't wait. Um, it is also, unfortunately, uh, the end of our book of Nehemiah, the end of our series. Uh, we've been going through this series, Building a Community of Hope. And uh, maybe you are hoping that the story uh, today ends with a, a happy ever after kind of ending, but it doesn't. Uh, and so we've called this one So Close and Yet So Far, because we're going to see that the Israelites uh, really, they totally mess things up uh, at the end here. And uh, so over the last few months, if you've not been with us, we've been in Nehemiah. We've seen God do just the most amazing things uh, as we've journeyed through. He's helped them rebuild Jerusalem against all odds. They're now secure. They're established again in this city. Uh, and they've come through some really tough times with lots of persecution from their enemies. Uh, and it looks like it was all going so well. And we thought they were on track building their community of hope. Uh, and then they've messed it up. And so, friends, I, I want us to recognize that uh, God has done some amazing things uh, for us too here over the years. As we look back over the years of Hope Church, as we've been building this community of hope uh, here in Harrogate. And there's some stuff in this passage that's going to really help us keep building our lives in a healthy, godly way and not stuff it up. Uh, and so let's see why it all goes wrong for the Israelites. Let's see where it went wrong. Let's read Nehemiah uh, chapter 13, uh, verse, verse 1. So on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. What's this all about? This is harking back to a time in their history. Uh, you can read about it in Numbers 23 if you really want to. Uh, and uh, the key thing here is really just to remember that they've God's, God said no Ammonite is meant to be in the temple, uh, meant to be in the assembly of God. He's He's given them this 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 law, and um, and it looks like in the next next sentence they do as he told because when the people heard this law they excluded from israel all who are from foreign descent it looks like they're starting out well before this so this is almost near my having a flashback now uh, elishab the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of god and he was closely associated with tobiah now does anybody remember dan's preach and there was a guy called tobiah that we had to boo and there was a guy called Sambalat that we had to boo. These were people that weren't particularly friendly towards the Israelites when they were trying to build uh, build the walls. Uh, these were these were really people trying to frustrate the plans of God. Tobiah also happened to be an Ammonite, all right. And Elishab has provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain and offerings and incense and the temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive. Uh, olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to return. So what's happened here is Nehemiah spent like 12 years as governor of Jerusalem. They're building the wall. Everything's going well. And then he's returned to Persia uh, for a couple of years. 
And then he came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Tobiah the Ammonite is in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased. I think that's kind of a bit of an understanding, you know, it's kind of a very British thing to say, isn't it? I was very greatly displeased. He was greatly displeased and he threw Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put them back in, into them, the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and all that the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why? Why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and I stationed them at their posts. And all Judea brought the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanon son of Zachor, the son of Matana, uh, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. And they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to the fellow Levites. Oh, God, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Now, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of, of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them again, selling against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men on the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods slept, uh, spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And from that time on, no longer came to the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. More, however, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashod or the language of one of the other peoples. And they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled their hair out. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by the foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joadiah, son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, boo, the Horonite. The high priest's grandson is married into the family of Sanballat. And so I drove him away from me. 
Oh, remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and of the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, and I assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provisions for the contribution of wood at the designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me, God. Remember me with favor, my God. Nehemiah is really upset. I think, we, did you get that? He's really upset. And I wonder what the people thought in that moment. Like, you might want to try and feel it yourself for a moment. Like imagine being one of the priests, uh, you know, who's gone back to the fields neglecting the temple. Or just the average Israelite who's been caught shopping on the Sabbath. What do you feel? What would you feel? Guilt? Fear? Shame? Well, maybe none of that. Maybe you're thinking, why so grumpy, Nehemiah? What's going on? Let's take a look. What? What's going on? Let's see what's happening. And to do that, I just want to pull back for a moment on chapter 13 so that we see the, the pattern in the narrative. Did you notice the writer takes us on this roller coaster ride of moments of obedience to God followed by disobedience? It's a, it's a roller coaster that speaks of man's inconsistency and faithlessness towards God. And if we zoom back even further, we'd see chapter 10. And you may have noticed we've skipped over chapter 10. We've not had time to read it today. But in chapter 10, the people come together and they agree before God not to forget his laws, not to intermarry with the idol worshipping nations around them, not to set up markets on the Sabbath or neglect the temple worship. They promise all this. These people knew the law of God, but they kept breaking their word. They've got this long history of messing it up. They seem so close to God, so close to his plan for them. Yet in reality, they seem so far from the mark. Well, what was God's plan for them? Well, to answer that, we need to zoom back even further, way back to a man called Abraham in Genesis. And we, he's the founding father of God's people. And it's in Genesis 12 where God chooses Abraham and he promises him that he will make his name great and he will bless him. And if you read that story, you'll notice that, that at the point that Abraham is chosen by God, Abraham has done nothing for God. There was no written laws yet for him to obey. God chose Abraham before the law was given and he blessed him as a free gift. We call it an act of grace. It was an act of love on God's part. God wanted to share his love with Abraham, but there was more. The New Testament says that our God is a God who loves to give grace on top of grace. And so it's not surprising that God tells Abraham that he's not just going to bless him, but that he, through him, all nations will be blessed. That's the big plan. Grace leading to more grace. Other nations were to see God blessing the family of Abraham, see them delighting in his love, following him in love, enjoying this special relationship with him. And when they did, the other nations would see the love of God and be drawn to him themselves. That was the plan. And we catch this glimmer of that plan actually happening in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Do you remember that story? Daniel chooses to obey God because he loves God, even if it means getting thrown to the lions for refusing to pray to a pagan king. But when God protects him in the lion's den, what does the pagan king do? Do you remember? If we looked at, at Daniel uh, 6, we'd see the king uh, says this. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. 
Friends, here we have a, a pagan king declaring to the whole realm that there is a living God that rescues and saves. Why? Because Daniel loved God and obeyed the law. You should not have other gods before me. And in Nehemiah 13, the same thing was meant to be happening. The people of God are meant to look different than the people around them. The Israelites were not meant to be inviting idol-worshipping Amorites into their temple. They were not meant to be keeping the offerings and tithes for themselves. They should have been shopping. So they shouldn't have been shopping in the markets on the Sabbath. They weren't meant to be marrying into idol-worshipping foreign families. They were meant to be a picture to the nations of what it looks like to be in loving relationship with the living God who, yes, has put boundaries in place to set conditions for his people to thrive because he knows what's best for them and he loves them. But instead, we've just got idolatry, selfish desires, sin. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah sees this and he's enraged. And the story just continues and he strongly enforces those laws and the people get put back on the path to obedience by him. But for how long, I wonder? Here's the problem. While Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, the people follow God. But when Nehemiah is not there, the people stop obeying God. It's a bit like driving down the motorway. You know, when you get to the roadworks, the ones with the, the average speed check cameras, suddenly everyone obeys the speed limit, right? The guy in the flash car that passed you just before doing 110 miles an hour is suddenly this law-abiding citizen doing 50 miles an hour, right? It's amazing. Just like that. It seems like everyone is joyfully obeying the speed limit. But let's be honest. Why are those cameras there? It's because if they just have the 50 mile an hour sign, that's not going to be enough to make people obey. And so they introduce this external motivation of the threat of a speeding ticket to force us to obey. And Nehemiah is a bit like that external motivation to the people of God in this story. But here's the thing. God has never been after obedience from his people that has been motivated by fear or control. God is motivated by love, not fear. The most famous verse in the Bible is probably uh, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. God was so motivated by love towards me and you that he sent his only son to rescue us from our sin. God is motivated by love, friends. And God's heart has always been to win to himself a people whose motivation was to, to follow him out of love. This last chapter in Nehemiah is, is points, it, it points to the, the need for more than just a Nehemiah motivating us to obey God through fear. The people in this story, they needed a, a heart change to obey God. They needed something inside, not something outside to motivate them. They need an internal motivation, not an external motivation to obey God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll, obey my, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love is the motivation for obedience. Obeying God isn't about legalism. God wants a people who desire to follow him out of love because he loved them first. Friends, let me simply make this main point. 
God is after your heart. God is after your heart this morning. He's after your heart. God is pursuing your heart with his love because he desires your love. And this matters because if we have the wrong view of God, if we see him as some sort of angry control freak, he will punish us if we disobey his rules. He just wants to control us, perhaps. That when it comes to God asking us to follow him in different areas of our lives, to obey him with our finances, for example, to obey him in our relationships, with our sexuality, with our thought life, with our possessions, in the choices we make, in the direction he's leading you, or the direction he takes this church in, whatever it is, our view of God and what motivates us matters in that moment. It's important to stop and ask, I think, what is motivating me? What is motivating you, I wonder? See, many of us are motivated by external things. We live in a culture, don't we, that that motivates us by external pressure. It's all over the place. For those of us in school, perhaps some of us do our homework on time, not because we want to do it in our hearts, but because if we don't, we'll get in trouble if it's late. Some of us, when we're driving down the motorway, we keep to the speed limit, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we don't want any more points on the license. Other of us are, are motivated by an external desire for comfort and security, perhaps. We, we go to work and keep busy because we get paid, not because it's in our heart to work. Our pay provides comfort and security. That's our motivation. Some of us are motivated by the desire to please people so that we do things in life to gain the approval of others. It's external motivation driving us to act sometimes rather than kindness or love. Do you see there's... There's lots of reasons, lots of different reasons why we might be motivated externally to do things in life. The problem is, is that these things can seep into our relationship with God. For example, I know that in, for large parts of my life, I've been motivated to obey God because of fear or shame, guilt, the approval of others, rather than this deep love for Jesus. See, Giving into the basket at church, for example, my motivation in the past was because everyone else was putting something in. I can remember having always having a few pence in my pocket, and I, you know, those baskets with the cloth ones, you could just drop some in. No one could see what you put in, but it would make a jingle jangle when you put stuff in, and so everyone would know that I'd put something in. Didn't want to be the the odd one out. What about serving at church? I've said yes to serving before, not because of my real deep love for Jesus, but because. I've been here too long to say no anymore. I've tried to share the gospel with people before, not because of my love for Jesus, but because I was actually made guilty to feel guilty about not caring enough about the people going to hell. That was my motivation, if I'm honest. Anyone else recognize those kind of external motivations shaping our decision in faith rather than it coming from this genuine deep love for Jesus? The hard thing is, is that sometimes you don't really know what's going on in your heart until those external motivations are removed. It's a bit like this. As a a kid, we used to keep chickens. uh, And my mum took me with her to teach me how to collect the eggs. Uh, And we'd put them in a little basket and then we'd walk home together. And um, she tells me I was such a sweet boy. But I can remember thinking as we walked home together, carrying those eggs. I wonder what it would be like 
to throw one of those eggs and see it explode. Oh, there's no way that I was going to do that because uh, mum was a great external motivation for me as we walked home together. I was, a, I was the good boy she wanted me to be. But the next day, mum said I could go get the eggs by myself. Oh, yeah. And guess what? When there's no Nehemiah around, I found out what was really in my heart and it was full of exploding eggs. Now, I think my mum might be listening, so she may still think that the chickens were laying less eggs. So I'm sorry, mum. Sometimes we don't know what's in our hearts until those external things, the Nehemiahs get removed. And when the Nehemiah uh, of the, in, in, this, in Nehemiah 13, when Nehemiah left the people, the people didn't keep the law because their obedience wasn't based on love. The law was actually about love. I mean, listen to what Jesus said um, about the law in Matthew 22. Uh, when when he was asked about it, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And get this. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Do you see it? Jesus says the Old Testament law was about love. God longs for people to love him and be motivated from that place of love, to obey him from that place of love, to love others from that place of love. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 that says, love never fails. Anything else that we rely on for our motivation in following and obeying Jesus, even if it looks good, will ultimately fail. That's why the people in Nehemiah messed up. They were so close yet so far because they didn't rely on God's love. God wanted their hearts. And friends, as, as leaders here, our desire for us as a church family is that we would be a people motivated by the love of Jesus and nothing else. As we knock on the door of 2021, our desire is that every one of us this year, we would continue to grow in obedience and following Jesus out of love. That we would learn from Nehemiah and be careful not to build this community of hope by relying on external things to motivate us to obey Jesus. Not to rely on Nehemiahs of this world, not on the Adams, not on the Pete's, not on the way we do things at church, not the expectations of people or people's approval, but only the love of the Father who gave his son, Jesus, for us. How do we do that practically, though? How can we work this out this week? How do we shift our perspective away from these uh, external motivators as we seek to obey Jesus day by day? Well, first of all, uh, come back with me to uh, John 14. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. But let's read a little bit further. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, but I will also ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Jesus says, the Father has given us his Holy Spirit to help us in this. And it's Galatians 4, 6 that says, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the Father's love to our spirits. He's the one that cries, Abba, Father. 
we, we can't do this on our own. What we need is, is the Holy Spirit's help to see how much God loves us, to reveal Jesus as Lord of our lives in a deeper way. So if you're struggling with idols in your life right now, the Tobias of our time, camping out in the temple of our lives, the love of money, power, sex, selfishness, greed, anger, our need to be in control perhaps, the pursuit of comfort and materialism, whatever it is for you, we need the Holy Spirit's help. I want to encourage you this week, friends. Oh, let's get on our knees and say with all our hearts, Holy Spirit, help. I want to follow Jesus. I know from my experience that God answers those kind of prayers. See, there's a time in my life when for years there was stuff I was mixed up in that I was so ashamed of as a Christian. Motivated by that shame, I, I tried really hard to stop doing this stuff and to be a better follower of Jesus. And I just kept failing. So close and yet so far. Day after day, I messed up. And it wasn't until I eventually got on my knees and I said, Holy Spirit, help. I want to follow Jesus. And something changed. And I began to understand in my heart the love of God in a deeper way. And as I did, my love for him began to grow. And the natural outworking of this, friends, of a heart that was, was growing in the love of Jesus was a heart that was joyfully bubbling over with obedience in that particular area of my life. I found that I no longer wanted to do those things. God had won my heart to obedience with his love. Friends, this is available to all of us. His Holy Spirit transforming us. His Holy Spirit winning us. Our hearts bubbling over with a desire to follow Jesus, a desire to, to, to obey him because he loved us first. Friends, what area of your life is it time to get on your knees and say, Holy Spirit, help. I want to follow Jesus. Friends, God wants our hearts. Lord, we... We love you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a God of love. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us. Father, thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is to win us, the people who follow you out of love because you loved us first. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would come and you would fill every single one of us listening right now. As we spend time together, you would speak, that you would reveal, that you pour your love into our hearts. Lord, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation right now across this church, into every corner of YouTube, into every Zoom room, into every living room, that we would know you better and that we would respond to you, to follow you with all our hearts because we love you and we've seen how much you love us. Holy Spirit, thank you. Amen.